0: All right. So welcome to another edition of the Wealth and Wellbeing Podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Resch, and I am here again with Ellie Luce. Ellie, hello. how are you?
1: Hi, Tyler. I'm good. Happy to start another episode.
0: Yeah, this was fun. Uh, we did one. We thought we'd do another. And so we're going to jump right into it. We have Drew Chan, um, who was recently appointed our co-CIO. Congrats, Drew. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So. Um, we wanted to talk today about the, the election and kind of what it means to your portfolio. And I promise we won't get uh, too political in all of this, but we really can't ignore the implications that the elections have on the financial markets, whether it's real or it's hist- kind of a hysteria that has been um, drummed up by the media. But certainly the, the elections are top of mind and um, they're going to play a role in, in people's psyche, if nothing else, related to their finances. Um, so this year, we have two very different candidates. Um, it seems like every year we sort of have this polarization happening. But this year, it's, it's, it's unique. It's different. Um, at least that's how it feels, where they have kind of like a different outlook on the United States, and particularly as it relates to people's wealth. Um You know, there's there's kind of these undertones of socialism, certainly that we saw with with a Bernie Sanders candidate in the primaries. Um, We have, you know, Trump's plan to make America great, um, which, you know, was his campaign promise in 2016. It seems like he's kind of carrying that forward into 2020. But as it pertains to finances, we we have two candidates that have presented two different plans for how they view or certainly it shows how they view wealth in America. So maybe you can briefly just touch on which uh, how each candidate kind of represents themselves as it relates to finance and, and the investment world at large. Sure, Tyler. Uh, there
2: are definitely some large uh, ideological differences between the two candidates, uh, specifically as it pertains to taxes and regulatory issues, alongside fiscal and monetary policy, foreign economic policy and domestic policy. Uh, at a high level as it relates to the investment world, we kind of know where President Trump stands. He favors less regulation as well as lower taxes, both on the personal and corporate side. Uh, He's also taken a unique approach of putting the United States first when it comes to trade um, and has been really critical of multilateral trade agreements um, and hasn't been afraid to use tariffs as a tool to negotiate uh, and even as a negotiating tool with uh, what we consider allies. Uh, That's a stark difference when you think about what former Vice President Joe Biden is really looking at to do. what he's trying to accomplish is actually reinstate greater regulation, uh, very similar to what we saw during President Obama's administration, uh, which focused on climate change, uh, which you know, definitely affected the energy sector, uh, banks, uh, the financial sector, as well as prescription drugs and technology companies. Uh, he's also calling for a variety of higher taxes versus lower taxes, specifically on high income earners uh, and thinking about new payroll taxes, you know, changing the cap gains, as well as higher estate taxes and capping deductions. Uh, on the corporate side, you know, he'd like to bring back the corporate tax rate back to 28% uh, from today's 21% level uh, and has started to push the increase of federal minimum wage to $15. Uh, and on the flip side, in terms of multilateral trade agreements and tariffs, I think Joe Biden's going down the opposite path of President Trump. You know, he like to re re engage the US with a lot of our trade partners. Uh, you know, think of NAFTA 2.0, aka the USMCA. Uh, and reduce tariffs uh, as a, using as a tool with our allies.
0: Yeah. So it sounds like they're sort of drawing the line in the sand uh, along, along tariffs and, and taxes, and, um, it'll be interesting to see how this shakes out for the, the individual investor, for those that have already made their wealth. And for those that are still aspiring to build their wealth, our, our audience on this podcast is, is really anyone, uh, or is, is the audience on this podcast is really someone who is in their financial journey at various different points. So we're speaking to people that are just getting started out and building their, their wealth plan. We're we're talking to people who have made their wealth and they are now thinking of giving it away. And it seems like both of these candidates, depending on who ultimately takes power in January of 2021 is going to have an impact on, on how people view, um, those, you know, their future as it relates to their finances. So before we jump into sort of what that means, maybe we can just take a take a moment and, and look back. Um, You know, the primaries are obviously over. It seems like the primary season this year was, was slightly different, you know, probably because we were amidst a, a pandemic. And uh, I, I know in 2016, it felt like the elections went on forever. And this year, it seems like You know they're kind of sneaking back up on us. Obviously, we had you know a lot of activity last year, late last year and early this year. But then throughout the pandemic, we haven't heard much from the candidates until most recently. And so now the conventions are even over, and so we're you know just a few short weeks away as we're recording this podcast today from an ultimate uh, an ultimate decision. So where are we with respect to kind of what's left between now and the election, and what can we expect? in terms of you know things that are going to happen sort of technically from a from a election cycle standpoint but also how the how the financial markets might interpret it
2: sure uh, you know 2020 to put it lightly <laughs> uh, to no surprise has been a very unique year uh, you know i think we've all been affected in various ways and political landscape has definitely uh seen different types of coverage than traditional and absolutely you know muted conventions uh, this time everything was done online uh, and I think the next steps really is, you know, getting to that debate stage, you know, from the lens from looking out uh, is, you know, former Vice President Biden and President Trump have really been star- sparring from a distance, uh, you know, via Twitter or, you know, single interviews. Uh, the next phase, which, you know, is introducing the debate format uh, will allow us to see them interact with each other. Um, and the gloves will come out and we'll come off and we'll know that it's going to get you know, a little bit more personal uh, but we'll really get to see how Joe Biden reacts to uh, President Trump's you know, aggressive and assertive campaign style. Uh, we've seen uh, you know, what President Trump had was able to do during the 2016 elections uh, with his rivals. Um, and then more importantly, we'll also see the vice president uh, uh, you know, potential candidates uh, with Kamala Harris, as well as you know, current vice president, Mike Pence, square off. Uh, I think that's gonna be a polarizing debate as well. Um, but at the end of the day, we know both sides are gonna be politicking uh, and the real key thing is kind of to monitor what's going on with the proposed policy points. After almost four years in office, we know pretty much where President Trump's administration uh, policy lie. Uh, but what's interesting enough is that Vice President, you know, former Vice President uh, Joe Biden uh, has really kind of shifted a little bit and t- t- tilted a little bit more to the left um, since March. Uh, so if you look back at some of the data and some of the policies it was kind of talking about in March, for example, for taxes, you know, he was talking about revamping and increasing, you know, labor protections and, you know, increasing federal minimum wage to $15 an hour uh, flash. Fast forward to August. Um, he's talking about restoring the individual income uh, tax rate to 39.6%. Uh, he you know, started pointing out that he wanted to raise the corporate tax rate to 20% um, and talking about how uh, Social Security taxes work and even talking about potential some 401k changes. So that's very different uh, from what he was talking about in March. Um, even other things on the fiscal policy side, uh, you know, talking about greater reliance on public transportation and using more green energy to actually talking about potential tax credits uh, for and subsidies for capital reinvestment uh, for low carbon technologies, uh, talking about a green deal package, you know, a trillion dollars. Uh, so we're starting to hear more numbers come out. Uh, and that's really going through a lot of different policies, you know, and that pertains to energy, healthcare, as well as uh, foreign economic policy. Um, so we're going to get a little bit more clarity. We'll get to understand better, understand where he kind of stands and ultimately what his real proposals uh, for policy are.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And again, this kind of common theme of of taxes seems to be percolating uh, the the road to 270 is, is, you know, one that I'm sure every political strategist has <laughs> has outlined and they've they've kind of come up with their their way to get there. But is it true that it really, that this election is only hinging on 11 states and, and is it, is it reasonable to think that the, the candidates will, you know, uh, try to make sure that those, those 11, st- that they win over those 11 states. Um, cause if they are necessary, you know, a coin toss, perhaps it's things like economic stimulus. And, um, I know you touched on healthcare. It's a little bit out of our domain, um, to talk about that, but certainly when it comes to economic stimulus and, and, and investments in the economy, is it reasonable to think that they would just sort of play that card across all 11 states? Or is there another way that we should be looking at it?
2: I mean, the way it kind of boils down right now is it looks like there are 11 battleground states, uh, which account for about 143 electoral votes. Um, Now, one thing to note, we all know uh, the blue wall famously collapsed in uh, 2016. So it's hard to take right. you know, everything for granted, but we pretty much know that the coastal uh, states, uh, both on the west and east coast, uh, you know, will lean a certain direction, and we know the bulk of uh, middle America will tend to lean a certain direction. Uh, so really, you know, right now, those 11 battleground states are the highlight focused, you know, starting really with Florida, then Pennsylvania, Ohio, Georgia, Michigan, North Carolina, Arizona, Wisconsin, Iowa, and then uh, some unique situations between Nebraska and Maine, uh, where you know their electoral votes aren't a winner take all. Um, so there's some, that might be as small as that, one or two electoral votes. Um, we know it was very tight in 2016, um, but and, you know those those are the battleground states that I think uh, both parties will be really focused on.
0: And are there like companies that that represent those states that are you know publicly traded that the that we could see the the candidates you know, kind of pumping up because, you know, if, if we're, if we're talking to finances and we're talking sort of the investment side of things, obviously, you know, Trump has been unabashedly in support of, uh, talking about how the markets have done. I mean, he'll get up and talk about coronavirus and his opening remarks will oftentimes be about the markets. And so he's clearly put that out there as a success story in, in his view. And so as, as, as an investor, do you look at what these two candidates can do for companies that are domiciled in those states or that represent those states, whether they be states that are, you know, ag focused or manufacturing focused or tech focused? Uh, I think
2: both candidates will probably do something along the lines of that and focus on uh, both the, you know, the companies as well as the individual, uh, you know, voter. You know, for example, I mentioned Florida, first and foremost, with 29 electoral votes, uh, key background state, uh, you know, their economy is heavily based on tourism. Um, so reopening the economy is going to be a major advantage for them uh, to you know, get back on their feet. Uh, at the same time, a lot of their voting base uh, are retirees, uh, they're going to be in a uh, you know, state exempt uh, income tax state. Uh, and so for that constituent, uh, you know, finances, individual finances are very, very important. Uh, at the same time, the next, you know, stay on the list is Pennsylvania, uh, where, you know, think about coal com- country has been devastated over the last few decades. Um, right. And, you know, I think that's a structural shift uh, that will continue to change you know, as uh, renewable energy you know, gets more and more traction. Um, but we saw in 2016 when President Trump kind of went to coal country you know, trying you know, to revitalize the fossil fuels. Um, he has to a certain extent, um, you know, pushed uh, fracking and uh, really allowed the United States to be a energy producer and exporter. Um, so that's definitely going to be the case. Uh, you know, Midwest, uh, you know, some manufacturing there as well. Uh, but it is a delicate balance. Uh, you know, each region, each state uh, has a unique uh, base for you know, local companies as well as uh, personal balance sheets.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And L, I promised the audience that we wouldn't get political, so I'm sort of trying to thread the needle here. <laughs> but um, it's so fascinating, and obviously, Drew has a wealth of information about um, where each candidate stands. The other question I have, just kind of related to where the current situation where we find ourselves in the current situation is on election day. So, you know, obviously in 2016, there was, you know, some activity to say, just to put it mildly <laughs> um, on the day before, the evening before, the night before the election as it related to the financial markets. Are we going to expect something similar? Um, and and what are, what's kind of the best case scenario in terms of knowing when we're going to have a, a winner? I think that was 2000 the 2000 election when we had the hanging Chad, and we didn't know a winner for, was it a few days?
2: Yeah, uh, it, it, the market's already been pricing in uh, additional volatility. Uh, we've seen an increased okay. uh, activity in equity hedging, for example, via the options market, uh, specifically for November. Uh, and you're absolutely right. 2016 uh, was particularly volatile, uh, especially if you actually track the futures market, uh, you know, declined, I think, past 850 and then rallied back hard. Uh, and then kind of was off for the races. Um, so it, it's always a good lesson on not trading on emotions. Um, and it was always a good reminder too, that uh, you know, a lot of the data, uh, even though it initially may look poor or you may feel one way or the other, uh, it takes time for the market to actually digest that information, uh, for policies to actually you know, be presented, uh, which policies actually might get enacted or higher chances of getting enacted. And ultimately, what does that mean uh, for the underlying economy and companies?
0: Yeah, I think that's such a good, you know, uh, axiom for our audience is just not to not to trade on emotion, certainly, but also to to look at things with a more a longer term perspective, which I think is what you're hinting at. Um, and it's a nice segue into where I'd, I'd like to continue our conversation to talk about. The, the historical context of what elections have meant for the financial markets, because there's obviously a lot of data on it. And if you were to turn on the news, you would think, OK, there's two camps, you know, there's my team, there's the other team. I'm going to invest along party line. I'm going to invest where my political party lines are taking me. Um, and that's not always the best strategy either. So maybe you can just talk about what it's like, you know, what historically we've seen from having an incumbent in the race and, and what do we know about how markets react when there is an incumbent in the race?
2: Sure, Tyler. Uh, yeah, markets tend to like it when an incumbent is in the race, uh, as typically they're trying to get reelected, um, and they're pushing stim- you know, policies to really stimulate the economy as they well know that many voters, uh, look at their own personal statements and balance sheet and their net worth as a measuring stick. Uh, you know, if the last four years they were, you know, saw that grow, uh, typically that was a, a vote of confidence that uh, the administration, uh, you know, was helpful for them. Uh, and at the same time, it was down, you know, they could be viewed as a detriment. Uh, and another reason why uh, markets tend to like incumbents is that it actually takes away some of the uncertainty. You know, it's kind of a recurring theme uh, today. And it's even more important today. Um, mar- the market really appreciates transparency. Uh, an understanding of, you know, what's going on in terms of rules, policies, transparency and earnings of companies, for example. Um, But when it comes to, you know, an incumbent, they they already know uh, what this, you know, this president has done for the last four years. And typically the policy changes don't shift dramatically uh, in the second round. Um, So, you know, when it's two brand new parties really trying to compete for the the spot, uh, the market really is uncertain, you know, of what the outcomes are. They could be more dramatic. In this case, uh, they already know one set of the rules, uh, and if that incumbent is reelected, you know the rules really don't change too much, um, and they only have to focus on you know another set of rules versus you know, two whole new sets.
0: Yeah, that makes sense, and it's another good axiom for the audience: is is when there's uncertainty, the markets tend to tend to react uh, unfavorably, which is which is totally understandable. And the transparency you talk about, you know, probably just doesn't exist with these. Um, The the lack of transparency that you talk about doesn't exist with these candidates because we, you know, we have a career politician in the race who's been in office before and we have um, Trump who we've seen, you know, at least three and a half years, almost four years of now. So it's it's pretty clear what we're getting. So I also read that um, what you shared recently was was about the Ford returns following an election. Um, Can you touch a little bit on that? Because that was fascinating to me. That the that the the forward returns are are typically favorable, yet there's only and there's only been a few different scenarios where they haven't been. Yet they've happened in our you know certainly in our lifetime, but even more in our lifetime than it's been happening. It's happened in the last uh, couple periods following an election.
2: Yeah, it's it's very easy to fall into uh, political noise and. You know, looking at policies as detrimental to both growth as well as uh, corporate earnings and, you know, valuations and risk assets. Uh, but actually, if you look back uh, to 1932, the average four year forward annualized return of the S&P 500 after an election has been nine point three percent. Yeah, that's fascinating. And only only three uh, you know out of the 22 uh, since then uh, have posted negative results. Uh, wow. And actually, you know, the largest one with negative results was uh, 1937 uh, during, you know, the height of the great depression. Uh, so it really took that, you know, kind of an environment, uh, to see kind of the the worst, you know, decade of returns.
0: Yeah. And yet, yet the other two, so you mentioned there were three, the other two, one happened in 2001, if I'm correct. And the other one happened in 2005. Is that what you, you shared with us? Yeah. So, you know, that's recent history for a lot of us. Um, obviously if, you know, it's, it's, that's a lot of people's wealth at stake, whether they're you know, just looking about getting, looking into getting into the markets or they've been in the markets and they're looking to retire, it affects people differently is, is you know, obviously being a prognosticator of this kind of stuff. Isn't necessarily the the best, uh, use of your mental capacities, but just for the audience's uh, <laughs> benefit, you know, if are the, are the pundits saying one thing and the, or is there, is there sort of a dialogue going on about what happens um, post election to the markets or is it is it are we just too focused on November third right now to even think that far ahead
2: uh, you know that's a great question and I think if you're looking at bottoms up uh, in terms of corporate earnings uh, growth of earnings uh, people are still optimistic investors are optimistic uh, you know. Many cases, if you look back since the inception of the S and P 500, uh, we've always we've hit over a thousand new highs uh, in you know the, this almost seventy years yeah. uh, that we've known the index to be the way it is, um, and that's attributed to companies being able to navigate multiple political regimes and environments. Um, but I kind of want to go back to that earlier comment you made about you know the other two times uh, where we saw negative results, uh, you know, two thousand one two thousand five, and Really, that was kind of part of the lost decade. Right. Uh, We had the tech wreck in 2001. Uh, We had uh, the Great Financial Crisis. So, you know, you think about what investors had to come through uh, to the largest, uh, you know, events in our lifetime, but particularly for the Great Financial Crisis, where really it was a systemic credit crisis, uh, which really devastated the entire global uh, economy. And we've been able to rebound uh, and it took us a little bit longer, uh, but we saw, you know, Different types of policies, both monetary and fiscal, um, to help us recover from that side. Uh, I know right now in 2020 we have the you know, the, the great pandemic crisis, um, as many are calling this, uh, you know, which was kind of self-inflicted, right? Governments decided to shoot, you know, shoot our toes and shut off the economy to save lives, and it was a difficult decision. Um, but ultimately, you know, we're starting to see the green shoots of that recovery, um, and. Once again, I think as long as investors are really focused on the long term uh, and believe that con- companies continue to be innovative, uh, that they want to grow, that they want to you know return shareholder value, uh, I think in the long term uh, many investors will you know be happy that they've been invested in you know, risk assets.
0: Yeah, I think that's helpful for the audience to 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 hear and to appreciate I, the the scenario that keeps coming to mind is the one that a very well-known publication put out recently which was a picture of a fire extinguisher on the cover of their publication implying that this was a break the glass scenario but but it, i mean this was a forced shutdown we were we're in a forced we're in a forced economic environment and kind of irrespective like you were talking about irrespective of of the candidates policies which we probably won't see come to fruition for you know quarters years. yeah or years right L. um were we should be able to kind of flip the switch and and go right back obviously it's not that simple if you're a small business owner you're saying there's no way tyler we're gonna be able to flip a switch and be right back but but essentially this was forced and there wasn't like a structural problem like we saw in 2008 is that is that a fair assessment
2: absolutely absolutely uh you know i think you know 2008 2009 we were really looking over the abyss uh and Saying, is the banking, you know, s- financial institutions that we know in the system uh, going to survive? Uh, will, you know, the counterparty that's making me a loan overnight gonna be in the business? Um, is this letter of credit worth anything? Uh, it's a very, very different environment right. uh, than where we are today. Um, and yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, there's a lot of politicking, I think, on both sides, once again, uh, and the media uh, does tend to look for the worst in all things. Um, they
1: want the dramatic story. They do.
2: They do. Um, right. And you know, it's just, you know, just can't be too consumed. And, you know, once again, not voting on your feet with, uh, you know, via your investments by fleeing out of an asset uh, or an asset class or your entire portfolio, uh, you know, trading on emotion is just very, very difficult.
0: Yeah. Let's, 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 let's touch on that. Cause I, you know, we we all have sort of that person in our lives, um, in our mind who is, you know, the person that's going to move to Canada if their team doesn't win or they're going <laughs> right. and, to. And obviously, you know, on a on a podcast that's talking about finances, we think about, you know, that person who's going to take all their money and go to cash, um, which may not yeah. be a bad thing, given some other reasons you might be in cash. But it's probably not a good idea to do that just because your team, so to speak, loses the election. Right.
2: Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's I mean, it's to your, to your point on that. I, I, everyone has their own personal lens um that they look through and invest through. Um you know, I kind of joke around uh you know, just at an asset class level, uh you know, find me a bullish bond manager. Right. Typically they don't exist. They're very very bearish. They're always looking at the worst-case scenario. Uh find me an uh an equity guy uh that hates their companies. I mean, typically they're very confident on a bottom-up level that uh, you know, they, they invest in high quality companies with very unique situations that uh, haven't been realized by the broad market. Um, and it's very important to kind of play Switzerland sometimes on that. Um, you know, as a great example, uh, you know, we're here based in Southern California, and I think a lot of us are touched via real estate uh, on a personal level. Either you, you rent a house, or you own a house, or you own maybe commercial property or multifamily. Um, through the downturn, when things started to get shut down, um, you know, I would speak to many clients who own second or third uh, properties, as investment properties or commercial properties, multifamily properties, uh, and each one you talked to has such a unique lens on that. Um, you know, some that had uh, maybe were in downtown LA, uh, did see difficulties. You know, they saw forbearance; they had to get forbearance to some of their their renters, uh, and you know dramatic low levels of uh, you know rent payments. You know to the tune of maybe six or seven percent. Right. And so, in their lens, that the entire real estate market is going to collapse uh, because you know their properties are only seeing 60, 70 percent of you know rental income come through. Uh, on the flip side, uh, some of the institutional managers we work with and other clients, even uh, that had great tenants or different unique you know location or situation, and in many cases saw you know ninety to ninety-five percent of rents being paid and other cases, 99 to hundred percent rents, you know, if it's industrial versus, uh, you know, multifamily, uh, versus retail, uh, for example. Right. So it's always bad to paint things with a broad brush and it, it's very, very difficult to kind of, you know, remove yourself from your own personal lens and situation, um, and look beyond, you know, you know, with the pain points that you're feeling.
0: Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, it's one thing to check a box and say, I don't want to invest in tobacco stocks or I don't want to invest in, you know, a certain, Mm -hmm. a certain sector, but it's another thing to take, a, you know, relatively knowledgeable retail investor and convince them to not think about the doom and gloom scenarios that might be populating their Twitter feed or that might be in their trade publication They're, you know, they're, they're sort of looking at it through their lens, like you alluded to. And, you know, that perhaps doesn't speak to the broader market. How does First Foundation Advisors overcome that with with some of the investors that, that we deal with?
2: You know, our, our investment team kind of tries to block out that that noise. Yeah. Daily noise, you know, be it market noise, you know, political noise. Um, You know, there's kind of two ways to look at it. You can overanalyze things. And in in, in our industry, we call it, you know, analysis paralysis. You know, you just get so much data dumped on you. You're trying to filter out through and make a decision. You end up doing nothing. Uh, On the flip side is that you make that quick emotional uh, move. Um, Once again, could be, uh, you know, difficult to time. Um, So it's, once again, trying to figure out and balance the long-term as well as the short-term um, so short term, you know, we think of things of, in terms of tactical. Uh, you know, and our tactical, uh, you know, time period really is 12 to 18 months forward looking, uh, and in our long term views is you know over the next decade. Uh, so what we're really trying to capture in the, over the short term, of those 12 to 18 months, is that we understand if you make a if you try to day trade, it's pretty inefficient, uh, especially if you're in a taxable account. There's a lot of tax friction um, as you you know rotate your portfolio and reallocate. Um, so you know thinking about what the market is giving us in terms of opportunity um, is, you know, typically where we start saying over the next twelve, fifteen months is something, you know, massively overpriced or misunderstood or underpriced, um, and where our valuations and ultimately where can we shift? Um, because what we're what we're trying to do is not create a binary outcome. Um, you know, we want to try to build a, a more uh, lower volatility, uh, a more consistent, uh, you know, result. Um, I think when you're trying to seek those binary outcomes, you know all or in all, you know, all in or nothing at all. Um, that's just market timing. And, you know, it's very, very difficult to do it consistently.
0: Yeah. It's, it's that notion that you, you know, seem to always espouse, which is you, you want to capture, you want to capture upside, but you want to also protect against the downside. And, and that's, you know, I think is, I mean, for someone like me, I, I can simplify it that way, just cause that's how my mind thinks. I know there's a lot more of a sophisticated approach, but when you boil it down to that. I mean, I think that's, you know, everyone's going to come out and say, yeah, that makes sense. I don't necessarily need to ride the highest of the highest crest of the wave to if it's going to expose me to the deepest trough.
2: Yeah, we're also in a unique situation, um, given, you know, what we've gone through, first with the GFC and now with the coronavirus. Um, As we know, central banks are being anchored to zero um, over the next few years. Um, And what that's really done is caused uh, interest rates to collapse and investors now uh, are being forced to seek uh, riskier assets to generate even just yield. Um, So, you know, 2007, you could find cash money market paying you 5%, uh, you know, cash is back at zero. So the the hurdle rate is different um, and you know, I think investors really have to really kind of reassess that. Uh, you know, sitting out in cash, you know, a decade and a half ago, you know, your your downside wasn't too much, uh, but today, you know, your once you, inflation just start to kick in a bit, I mean, it could be a few years out, uh, but it could be a you know, pretty punitive in the long term. So, you know, in your term, if you're being a little more cautious, you know, I would say tactically shift uh, or, or tilt your portfolio, um, but you know, making that binary decision, right? And uh, and kind of irrespective that crystal ball is hard,
0: right? And, and irrespective of who wins this election, um, it doesn't sound like the, the candidates uh, have the, the candidates that have an approval rating that is you know, maybe one third or, or a little bit more than one third of the population. They, the markets still seem to do OK in spite of that. And in fact, I think you even share that when the candidates have a lower approval rating, the markets tend to outperform when they have a higher approval rating, <laughs> which is a little counterintuitive.
2: It's definitely counterintuitive um, and it's, it's interesting because, um, you know, it kind of goes back to the market enjoys transparency and uh, it enjoys knowing what the rules are. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So if you think about it, uh, typically when there's low approval ratings, um, there's a lot of gridlock. Yep. Um, we know how the, the, uh, our federal government works in terms of uh, Congress, you know, every two years, you know, a third gets you know, set up for elections. Uh, nothing, the government doesn't shift all in one day. Um, it takes time. Uh, in many cases, even then, you know, we saw the Republicans have control, full control in 2017 um, and ultimately their you know, tax change uh, bill um, was a diluted from, and delayed from what they initially wanted um, because they had to appease all parts of uh, you know, the, 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 their parties. Um, so I, I think it's definitely difficult uh, in that sense uh, and, you know, interesting enough, uh, if you look at the data, the presidents who have had, you know, a greater than 65 percent approval rate since the 1950s, you know, they've only returned about 5.4 percent per year. Uh, whereas, you know, if you were in that 33 to 50 percent approval rating, which seems pretty bad, um, you know, that's been the highest one. Yeah. Uh, pretty amazing to see that, uh, you know, about 15.3 percent gain per year. Um, and that's pretty normal. That's actually the, you know, thir- th- about 37 percent of the time, uh, you know, you have a, an approval rating that's pretty low, sub 50 percent.
0: So it sounds like the market's like uh, the checks and balances built into a to a stable democracy as well. So
1: Trying to make everyone feel better. That's right.
0: Yeah.
2: I mean, it, it, if you're trying to manage a business and I know, you know, small business owners, uh, quite a few of them here in Southern California. Uh, if you reflect back even to President Obama's administration. Uh, when they were talking about if you hire that 51st employee, you know, what does that change um, for your business? Um, you know, a lot of small business owners were saying, well, I want to grow, but I'm not sure. I am really not sure what the rules are going to be if I hire that next employee. Um, right. So that regulation piece, uh, you know, if you know what the rules are going to be for the next few years, you can better plan, uh, you know, for your business.
0: So I want to take us into the recap, um, and, and wrap up. But, um, before I do that, I, I, I wanted to just call out a couple of points and just make sure that, that you agree with them so the listeners can kind of see the, the the clarity that you're sharing. It's um, don't invest along party lines. Well, it might be okay to vote along party lines, and, and we're not opining on that, but don't invest along party lines. Is that a safe sort of takeaway for some of our audience?
2: Yeah, specifically if you're trying to uh, have uh, you know, the full full my team only. Right. You know, it's rare that it occurs. Um, and it doesn't stay too long. Um, so, you know, your alternative sitting in cash can be pretty detrimental. And
0: then the other one is around transparency. So the markets like transparency, they don't like uncertainty. And as long as you're investing for the long term, you're, you're in a much better shape than if you're trying to time things on a daily, weekly, or even monthly basis, it sounds like.
2: Yeah. There's always going to be a wall of worry of some sort, um, in any environment. Uh, and it's, like once, like we said earlier, you know, you've got to sometimes block out that noise and look long term and see the fundamentals are there or
0: not. Perfect. So I'm curious, just as a wrap up, where were you the night before the election results on um, on 2016? Before that, the next day when they announced the winner, because <laughs> the future markets uh, were going bananas, right? I mean, they were <laughs> the 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 floor fell out, right?
2: Yeah. Uh, I vividly remember this because uh, I had actually hosted a uh, team-building bowling event downtown L.A. <laughs> nice, yes. um, And, uh, you know, sad to say, I came in second place uh, that afternoon to one of my colleagues. Yes. Uh, quite proud of my bowling uh, <laughs> skills. But uh, a few of us were gathered at dinner at El Cholo uh, across the street from Staples. And as the election data started to come out and we saw the collapse of the Blue Wall of Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin... Um, you could see uh, the conversation in the restaurant started to pick up. Uh, that uh, you know Trump, uh, you know might actually win this, right? And you know pulled out the phone, started looking at futures markets. Uh, definitely started to plummet. Um, and you know the conversation on the table, you know, really was talking about, oh my gosh, you should be selling. Uh, this is going to be so bad. Uh, and you know, I, I remember vividly telling colleagues that, hey, look there's still too many unknowns we don't know what's actually going to be real or not um you know i always like to think about things of you know odds you know statistics we're in the business of statistics you know policies likely to be implemented versus policies that may or may not be implemented versus policies that are kind of a you know a pipe dream uh you know then very very highly unlikely you know to become law and i think that's the part separating uh, you know emotion um versus kind of what's What's the end deal uh, is so apparently, uh important. Um, you know, I remember same thing with Brexit occurred, right? Everyone basically said, "Well, you know, England's going to fall off the face of the earth. Um, they're going to go back to, you know, what they were a few hundred years ago." Right, uh, and you know, clearly they aren't um, now as they get more transparency. And we you know there's some going through Brexit, um, negotiating the deal there. Um, but clearly, you know, people are seeing opportunities, and I think. Uh, as what we talked about, the details come out more and more. Um, You know, investors get more comfortable, companies get more comfortable um, allocating capital and understanding the rules and what the potential outcomes can
0: be. So where are you going to plant yourself on November 3rd this year? (laughs) Are you going to go back to El Cholo and have a a bowling event or are you going to. It's
1: going to get first place in the bowling (laughs)
0: event
2: uh you know unfortunately uh this year uh i think we'll so- still be either socially distanced That's right. or uh, the bowling lanes won't be open so um and i'll probably be at home on my couch uh watching uh you know just like everybody else to see uh you know what the next 4 years will bring
0: uh, makes sense so yeah. drew this has been um incredibly enlightening and educational if if people want to learn more about you know some of these thoughts and comments they can obviously go to our website. You're, you're a very prolific writer and you produce a lot of content. Um, is there any, anywhere else? So our website, the, the News and Insights section, we have um, content about the investment markets, about wealth planning. And um, you know, anytime the market moves, we, we tend to write about it just to give our clients uh, some perspective, if nothing else. Um, and, and obviously to help educate along the way. Are there other sources of content that you would direct our audience to just to kind of stay apprised and keep level-headed um, as you're trying to impart upon us this this nature this necessity for having some level-headedness <laughs> heading into november 3rd
2: um you know yeah i would definitely you know recommend uh our our week ahead blogs uh, as well as our market action updates um you know follow us on linkedin um for me it's always about data so i, I track a lot of our government websites for economic you know, activity. Right. Um, For me, it's always looking at, you know, where, what direction things are going. um, And more importantly, what the velocity is um, and getting a pulse on that. Um, So, you know, i recommend, you know, just following the data, you know, versus, uh, you know, an op-ed.
0: Or Instagram.
2: Or Instagram (laughs) or Twitter. I know that's a way, you know, everyone kind of sources their information these days. Um, But it's, now was probably more important than ever to just kind of reassess everything. And I think the week ahead, uh, most recently, the one that I wrote, uh, was talking about reflections and kind of reflecting back of what's happened year to date, um, you know, your own personal experience and psyche going through March and April, um, you know, with markets still volatile today, you know, this past week, uh, now probably better than ever, markets are still positive for equity markets, um, you know. Time to rethink and revisit your risk profile. Is it the one appropriate for you? Uh, has anything changed? Um, and then ultimately tilt as needed. Um, you know, we're not saying get out completely out of everything um, or pile in 100% at the same time, um, but really try to understand what you're trying to accomplish on the long term. Um, and we mentioned earlier, you know, 19, nine out of 22 times, you know, for looking on a four year after an election has been positive know, to the tune of almost 9.3% and going back even further, uh, you know, since the SP really existed, um, you know, the equity markets go up about 73% of the time. So
0: say that stat again,
2: 73% of the time, you know, this five 500 goes up on an annual basis. Yeah. Um, so it's fascinating. There's a reason why typically you, know, you get rewarded for being a long-term investor.
0: Makes sense. Um, so perspective is maybe another uh, takeaway for the audience just to have some perspective. So, Drew, we can't thank you enough, Um, spoken truly like a chief investment officer, sourcing the data as his go-to news outlet. I I tried to press, guys, but I only came up with uh, the data sources. So if you are um, wanting to follow some of the sites that Drew mentioned, um, it looks like you're going to have to head to a site that ends in .gov. I I tried to get something a little more salacious, but um, it's going to be data. So Um, Drew, thank you very much. Thanks for your time. Thanks for keeping us level headed as we head into this. um, What probably will be a volatile uh, period, whether it's market volatility or just psychological volatility through all the media craze. Uh, We feel like we're we're better off um, knowing and we would invite you to come back and speak with us again post election and kind of Lay out what we can expect in the next four years, if that you're okay with that.
2: Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it.
0: Wow. So I tried to stay out of the political arena, but man, is it tempting to um, talk about the candidates and what they mean and just all the hype around it.
1: You did a good job. We didn't hear too many, you know, one way or the other, Republican, Democrat. It's, it's, so easy to think you can just look at it through one lens through you know an investment lens or financial lens but there's there's so many lenses that you can bring into it so it's kind of nice to hear one approach to it that wasn't too politicized I mean he really outlined things that it does not matter which party you're part of or not a part of that you can follow and you know just have a more level head about it and and as he said like take that emotion out
0: yeah, and, and spoken like a true chief investment officer, he was true to his data sources, like I mentioned. Yeah. But also, he, he, um, he, he, you know, he, he does, he doesn't, he doesn't really think in terms of election cycles. I mean, obviously, it comes up every four years, every two years in the Senate. But like, you know, he was talking about things that were happening in 2007, and um, it just didn't, you know, it didn't necessarily align with with politics. So it's it's good to know. I mean, if nothing else you know, we can all get sort of caught up in, in the, the political hype, but we certainly hope that our investment professionals that are looking out for our money are, are looking at a much more broad perspective.
1: And that's, that's funny. You say that because when he was talking, I thought, gosh, I'd feel, I'd feel so much more comfortable going to talk to someone like him. And then just thinking about myself right now, it's such a data, data dump, you know, you can watch the news and you can watch three different channels and you're seeing the same data in so many different ways. And then the emotion like we're talking about with the media, it brings on the drama no matter what side. So you have to take the emotional part kind of out of it. Don't overanalyze the data. I think he knows the sources that he trusts, that he monitors, and like he said, the velocity of it. And that helps probably so much where that's the person I want to go talk to. <laughs>
0: yeah, for sure. Well, we definitely, sounds like we have to have him back after the election so that he can help frame our thinking it's probably not even though the election will be in the rearview mirror probably still will be um a media frenzy uh end of the year so
1: for sure and also it it he makes you truly think about it logically as and look back on anything typically you know no no policy or no new program is enforced within the first day they're elected or even month they're elected i mean these things like you said they take, they take time, time and yeah. they take so much time and, and to act the probability of them getting passed and then getting passed into law, you know, it's a, it's a journey, you know, and four years is a long time, but it's a quick time when it comes to some how the government moves.
0: For sure. Certainly how the, yeah, how the government moves. Exactly. Well, um, did you have fun again? I did. Yeah. Episode two was
1: a success for me. I like uh, hearing about a different lens of, you know, the politics and from, Someone that knows it very well. And Drew did a great job.
0: Well, let's do it again. Let's see you soon. All right. (laughs) Thanks, Al.
1: Of course. Bye. Thanks, Tyler. Bye.